This is the Deep Color podcast series. Deep Color is an oral history project where I talk with artists about their work and their lives. The ultimate goal here is to give listeners a better understanding about the experiences and people behind the artwork. My name is Joseph Hart, and I produce and facilitate this series. These recordings are casual, straight on, and unscripted. In this unorthodox episode, I speak with Nicholas No. Nick is a friend of mine, and he's a musician. He's an art enthusiast, and he produced a documentary about the art noise band Lightning Bolt, but he does not identify as an artist. Nick has extensive knowledge of global politics. He is a co-founder of MideastWire.com, which is a Beirut-based news translation service covering Middle East media, and co-director of the Exchange Politics Program, which now counts more than 500 alumni from 48 different countries. He regularly provides commentary for Al Jazeera International and the BBC, and he's written op-ed pieces for the New York Times, Newsweek, The Guardian, The Huffington Post, among other celebrated news sources. Most recently, Nick served as regional organizing director in Michigan for Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign. As I continue to find my post-election footing, I thought it would be a useful exercise for me to put down my usual media sources and talk to someone who is directly involved with this election. It was a pragmatic, straightforward, and relevant conversation, and I wanted to share it in this context. Here we are at my studio a handful of days after he had returned to New York from Detroit. Um, but uh, uh, I thought we could start off with how I came to know you. Do you remember the first time you met me? The first time? No. I mean, it must have been. I feel like a, we, we crossed parties on the party circuit in Providence Brown when we were students. Party. Yeah. But I don't think I actually spent real time with you until Roebling Street. Yeah, until what, New York City. Right? Until New York City, where um, some friends That's in right. common, we all collided, and I ended up building out your apartment. More importantly, you framed my window. I, I put a window in your bedroom. Everyone joked would never have gotten done because I was the most incompetent builder <laughs> of all of our artist friends. <laughs> but I think that's yeah. that's sort of the origin of, of me getting to know Nicholas now. Yeah, that's true. And that would have been, what, 2000, 2002? 2002. Yeah. Um, and at that time, were, were you then working for Clinton when she was senator? I had left working for her because uh, she had won the Senate in 2000 mm-hmm. and uh, I had started to work for uh, at City Hall for the speaker of the New York City Council so oh, that's right You're I at was City over Hall. at City Hall then okay yeah. and then I'm just trying to like quickly go through the timeline at what point did you decide to leave the states and and sort of set up shop in in Lebanon I decided at the end of 2000, well, middle of 2003, okay. which is when the uh, invasion, the second Iraq war uh, started, the mm-hmm. invasion in, in March of 2003, under Bush. I decided then that I was, uh, I was uh, not as interested in local city government and in democratic politics, uh, nor was I necessarily interested in... Uh, in national government in DC, I was much more interested with what was going on out in the world, mm-hmm. and uh, particularly in the Middle East. Particularly in the Middle East, mm-hmm. um, and I decided to start looking for work, basically. Um, and I, I wasn't actually sure about the Middle East. I knew I was interested in it. I had grown up uh, with a woman who's a close friend, whose name is Najla Saeed, who's the daughter of a Palestinian intellectual named Edward Saeed. 
Um, so I had known Edward and I had always been interested in that milieu and, you know, those issues. Uh, and obviously September 11th was something that um, got me more, much more interested in foreign affairs in general. Mm-hmm. Just trying to understand it. Yeah. From trying a global perspective. It. Well, and also just... Uh, uh, feeling as if, uh, you know, normal things like feeling, I, I grew up in Manhattan and, you know, mm-hmm. been in New York City for 26 years and um, I wanted to get out in the world and actually, yeah, to minimize my intellectual commitment to the issues, I was either going to go to Rio de Janeiro or Beirut um, and Beirut because of Najla's family um, and also interest in the Middle East and Rio because a friend was working down there and I thought Brazil was really interesting and crazy and great too. Um, right. And just as chance would have it, I got an offer from a UN agency to do a part-time gig in Beirut. So it kind of all, it all, um, it all matched up. Um, and I went there in February, Valentine's Day, uh, 2004. Right. And then when you were in Lebanon... Mm-hmm. Is that did you was Mideast Wire something that came out of your time there, or well, why don't you tell us what Mideast Wire is for yeah, the people that don't? Well, no. Don't uh, when I first got there, I worked uh, part time for a UN agency uh, on a short term contract, and then also uh, worked at the local English language newspaper called the Daily Star. And uh, and this is in Beirut. This is in Beirut. Okay. Um, and I left on September first, uh, two thousand four. Um, and I made my way back to the U.S. basically, and I wasn't sure if I was going to come back or not. I decided to apply to graduate school mm-hmm. um, in the fall and winter. Um, but then in uh, in February, actually Valentine's Day again, 2005, the former prime minister of Lebanon was assassinated in downtown Beirut, and this led to an outpouring of uh, of people power on both sides of the issue, actually, mm-hmm. which was really fascinating. And what what became apparent to myself and also friends that were in Lebanon that were participating or watching or writing about this was that the perspective on CNN and, and various Western media outlets uh, was very much just a two-sided debate, either kind of you know, with a liberal, secu- secular, pro-Western side mm-hmm. or a, you know, pro-Islamist, maybe even jihadist, dangerous, uh, intolerant side. Mm-hmm. And what, be- what you know, even from my little bit of time in, in Lebanon and also our friends who are Lebanese and Arab who were watching and participating was that, you know, there was a, a wide spectrum of a very intelligent opinion that wasn't being translated, basically. Right. So um, I left as Anderson Cooper was parachuting into downtown Beirut to cover the, what, would, what the U.S. State Department um, and others would label, or late, you know, then actually that week labeled the Cedar Revolution. And uh, yeah, it was apparent that uh, a lot was being missed. Um, and that when you miss those, uh, those different um, nuances, but also you know, big differences and different formations and opinions, you can make really bad policy decisions yeah. like the Iraq war. Right. Um, so, you know, it was very apparent, I think, to a strong center of opinion that um, the uh, the kind of pro-American, pro-Western forces in Lebanon and the region had some serious problems attached to them mm-hmm. um, and also had serious legitimacy issues as well with large segments of the population, with elites, with bad people, with good people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that wasn't being properly fleshed out. It just seemed like it was, you know, good versus evil. Um, and in the press, in the media. In the media, yeah. yeah. And then also amongst the political leadership here. Sure. Um, and so, uh, you know, one of the, one of the ideas was, uh, well, you know what, we need to translate more of this content from the region itself 
into English um, in order to better inform public debate, in order to better inform students that are writing about this, studying mm -hmm. it, um, and also politicians and universities, governments, journalists, whoever it may be. So that's, that's Mideast Wire from 2005 that we've had since then. Um, and that's really that and, and a, a political conference program that I've been doing for the last eight years in the Middle East. These are the two main tenets of kind of what I've done. Right, right. And listeners can check it out. It's mideastwire.com. Yeah. And how many papers or, or news media uh, things do you translate at this point? We don't translate England? that much. I mean, on a daily basis, we translate about 15 or 20 you know, pieces that we think you wouldn't necessarily expect right, to read right. in the media. So we're really interested in opinions and news that kind of challenge what, you know, one would think. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, it's interesting when a uh, Syrian pro-Assad paper publishes a piece that is critical of Donald Trump, for example. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. That's, that's interesting, right? Sure. I mean, supposedly Putin and Russia and Assad all probably love Trump, right? Yeah. But, so that's more interesting. On the flip side, it's interesting when, you know, a pro-American-leaning newspaper, let's say, uh, that supports a pro-American figure in the Middle East, writes something critical about the United States or about Obama mm -hmm. or Hillary or Trump. That's that's the kinds of things that we're looking for. Cool. And then also, in addition to that, you did this exchange program. Yeah, and we have a politics program that brings uh, students from around the world that are studying the Middle East to meet directly with the different uh, leaders in a country, whether that be political leaders or or uh, media leaders or activist leaders um, or uh, you know trade unionists. Um, but the key provision there is that you meet pretty much all different shades of people. So right. you meet people that our, our country and some other countries consider to be terrorists. You meet some people that are considered to be terrorists by those people that are considered to be terrorists. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, one of our programs... Depends where people are standing. Depends on where you're <laughs> standing, but the idea is that you get to directly listen to and engage with these people. Yeah, that's great. And then, um, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you is, uh, uh, you know... This is a post-election conversation, mm -hmm. and um, you came back to the states um, for this, for this, yeah. and to sort of reconnect with um, the Clinton campaign, mm. and uh, uh, you got dispatched to Michigan. Mm -hmm. Is this correct? Yeah. yeah. Um, and um, you know, myself and any number of other people I've spoken to are, are st I think, still trying to get their footing about what just went down. Yeah. Um, I think we're all sort of been blindsided by our own arrogance and mm -hmm. our own naivete from these echo chambers and these bubbles that we're which we're yeah. sort of talking about before we turn on the microphones. Yeah. Um, and I thought it'd be really great to, to get your perspective yeah. as someone who's going to be much more informed than I am and um, has been out of this country working in one of these areas that's, you know, been such a hot topic in the campaign. Um, not Beirut specifically, but the Middle East. Um, um, and then for you to come back and work on this campaign, it'd be, I thought it'd be great. So when you were in Michigan, um, what sorts of things were you doing for the campaign? Are you able to talk about that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I was a regional... And this is the Clinton campaign, yeah. just to be clear. Yeah, uh, I was a regional organizing director for... Uh, actually, it was called the Michigan Coordinated Campaign. So we were actually trying to elect Hillary Clinton and Democrats up and down the ticket mm -hmm. uh, from 
the lowest level town supervisor up to uh, up to Hillary. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, my my area of responsibility was the was part of the crucial county that arguably, you know, led to the defeat of the campaign in Michigan, which is Wayne County. Wayne County includes uh, a couple really interesting parts uh, of Michigan and also facets of this country, which is Detroit, which has, you know, a long history as a beating heart of this country, Mm -hmm. whether that be in terms of industry, race, um, (laughs) cars, uh, music, music, Motown, Mm you know, everything. Uh, it has all these uh, wonderful and also all of the tragedies of American history, or a lot of them at least, mm-hmm. um, at least domestic U.S. history uh, embodied there. So um, there's that side, and then there's also the largest Arab and Muslim American community in the country, which is mainly cited around uh, Dearborn, Michigan, but mm-hmm. is also includes some parts of Detroit and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And it also includes these areas of uh, lower middle class uh, middle-class white working America, mm-hmm. um, which has also been, uh, which has also been, uh, you know, shaken over the last 20, 30, 40 years, arguably mm-hmm. economically, uh, socially, culturally, mm-hmm. politically. Um, so it had these three, you know, huge sort of, sh- let's say, shards of, of the American uh, electorate um, and, um, and the American body politic. Um, mm-hmm. Although small, uh, the Arab-American community arguably delivered Michigan to Bernie Sanders against mm-hmm. Hillary in March when he in won. In the primaries. Su- the primaries mm-hmm. when we, he had a surprise upset there. Um, arguably uh, one major reason why Hillary didn't win in terms of just like pure voter numbers was because black people in Detroit didn't really turn out mm-hmm. like uh, like we had hoped or mm-hmm. like we needed. Um, and then also, uh, you know, part of my district in Wayne County was, you know, uh, an incredibly strong uh, sentiment towards uh, the direction of Donald Trump. Um, or I would say rather in the direction that Donald Trump intimates he wants to take the country Mm -hmm. um and i think that um you know no matter which bubbles we all live in if there's a right-wing one a heartland one a coastal one a left-wing one or whatever Mm -hmm. um definitely apparent in places like this area of michigan is that um people are not being duped for the most part um they are enormously concerned about their future and their family's mm-hmm. future. The types of people that really come out and vote. There are aspects of hatred involved on all sides, but certainly on the Trump side, the mm-hmm. Trump electorate. Um, but when you're talking about people that have been you know, devastated or shaken in so many different degrees over the past decades and see a really bleak future, um, for me, it's less important to uh, indict people for any of the hatefulness that might be underlying part of their reason for voting. Right. It's it, it's it's more to figure out uh, how you find a solution to that. Sure. So. Yeah. And with hindsight, or what do you think when you're in Michigan? What was the can was what was the Clinton campaign doing well? Um, versus what it wasn't doing well. 
if you well, could if you could square those two things i mean you know the 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 argument that was put out in the media for the last couple months was that the clinton campaign nationally and in battleground states had a competent extremely competent data driven technology infused ground game mm-hmm. right and trump had none and trump was the exact opposite right which gave exactly the, the, the political norm theater the sense that like oh we have there's an advantage right. yeah right so I mean you, you know it's said over and over but you just almost can't like script this sort of stuff yeah. and it's just so Hollywood esque movie movie like but it really was the squaring off of total opposites. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I remember, you know, they opened like a few offices, like a few weeks before the election. Um, they would have huge rallies, which of the course, Trump campaign, the Trump campaign yeah. would have huge rallies that any campaign would be jealous of. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't try to get people to volunteer the next day, which right. is just like, you know, political electioneering 101 is yeah. when you get your guys out, you don't just you're not just putting on a show and you know they're going to vote for you. Yeah. You need them to go knock on 10 doors and right. talk to 10 people and phone 100 people. Right, grow it out. Grow it out. You've yeah. got to build a volunteer base and you got to also make sure that people get out to vote. Um but it turned, you know, they had none of that uh, at least in Michigan, I'm not sure about other places, yeah. but um so that was that was the that was what was written about um in terms of being the kind of what what the Clinton campaign was doing very well and what the Trump campaign was not doing well. Right. Um, and then there was lots of other things, you know, that were argued about, about what the team Clinton was doing well versus uh, the Trump campaign. But, you know, a, a large part of that and probably a decisive part of that could be chalked up to, uh, you know, analysts and other voices believing that what's, you know, conventional good politics uh is the right thing to do and right. successful and good. And when you're not doing that, you, you're being stupid and you're right. setting yourself up for big defeat. Right. Um, and we have to remember too that, you know, there's an important aspect like in any profession of, um, you know, your self-perpetuating paycheck basically in the sense that if you, if your job or your industry or your business or businesses is founded on the idea that you're needed and that, you know, your industry is needed and that your industry works, polling, consultants, yeah. media gurus, advertisements, yeah. all these things, then you, you're you invested economically, mm-hmm. not to mention morally and whatever else wise, you know, like status wise, you're invested in, in the perpetuation of that system. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's partially what was going on was an industry that refused to believe that a guy that wasn't spending money on political consultants huh. I mean, the whole framework of yeah. modern he just wasn't campaign. playing the game like they wanted him to he, not only was he not playing the game he wasn't paying for it yeah i mean the 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 biggest outrage to the political campaign you know uh industry is that donald trump got so many billions of dollars of free publicity right right that's right. a terrible lesson because that means that in the future Candidates don't necessarily need to spend a hundred million dollars on 62nd or 22nd or negative ads much less on the political consultants that charge Hundreds of millions of dollars to make it happen. Mm -hmm. Did he just just create a new normal moving forward? Well, I mean, it's too early to say maybe well, no, I mean, uh, I I think uh, I I mean, absolutely uh, this campaign will probably be looked at as having revolutionized American political campaigns for Mm -hmm. better or worse is an open question, right? Um, 
there's a lot good there. There's a lot of things that were undermined by his success that are probably positive for a healthy democracy. Mm-hmm. There are other things that aren't. Um, but definitely one thing that is good is it is good to undermine the, um, the economic uh, interest group that political campaign people and, and companies represent. Yeah. Because, um, you know, uh, the, the main th- thing that's happened over the last 10, 20 years of their existence or 20, 20 30 years of their real existence um, is that they became uh, very calcified, very arrogant. Um, and also wrong too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what do you think the DNC's biggest mistake was? I think the DNC in the past like six months. Oh, I mean the the headline mistake is how it dealt with Bernie. Yeah. Um, that that seems that seems evident. Um, do you think he could have won? Uh, yeah, I think I think Bernie could have won. I mean, you know, it's it's he would have had a you know he would have had a, a good fighting chance to yeah. win definitely I, I i don't that's harder to say what i do know is that he would have enthusiastically turned out a lot of voters right with less bang needed to right. get those you know, right. less buck needed rather right. to get those folks out so that that's a significant that's a significant yeah. thing also donald trump's messages would have been uh, far harder to come across. Right. As Bernie, all the things that Trump hit Hillary on would be very tough. Yeah. You, you, you kind of only have like one or two, you know, attacks, although, you know, I'm sure more would have come out, but I mean, basically you're just going to say he's a communist and then right. maybe you float some anti-Semitic stuff, you know, right. as the underlying, but that stuff, it doesn't really get traction. Right. Do you think, uh, the DNC has learned from this process or they, or do you, Probably not. moving forward, they're going to probably not. Probably not. I mean, well, the Democratic Party has just elected Senator Schumer, Senator Chuck Schumer right. from New he's York, who's, you know, who's a who's a very hardworking uh, guy, but, you know, is part of the old establishment the Democratic me- the old Party. old mechanism, and, yeah. You know, the old mechanism. So if that's the leader in the Senate, we're not sure who's going to lead the DNC. Um, they're, they're, but, you know, then again, the thing that, that, Trump showed with the Republican Party is, you know, maybe maybe we don't need parties anymore. Maybe that's where, maybe that's where things are going, and maybe that's uh, maybe that's a, a decent thing. Maybe that's all right. Hmm. What would you say that uh, we're distracted by right now, and what should we be focusing on? There's so much noise out there. Yeah, um, I mean, we're not we're distracted by the series of dangers that this president is leaving to the next one that will be very difficult to solve, especially with a divided electorate that exists both here at home and abroad. And the potential for dealing with really big problems, especially economic problems, Mm -hmm. a la 2007 and 8, um, and potentially even worse um, market crashes market crashes um, uh, yeah global slowdown or meltdown um, all these things America in order to get out of the last great recession spent a tremendous amount of money mm-hmm. and we simply it's a great question whether or not with you know how many tens of trillions of 20 trillion dollars in debt now can the system absorb 
shocks of that magnitude or even worse. Right. Um, so we're in an extremely precarious position economically. Um, at the same time, you know, there are things happening to our workforce, um, especially vis-a-vis -vis technology that are moving faster than anyone had anticipated even a few years ago. And these are things that, you know, a lot of people voted on because they're not stupid. Mm -hmm. um, you know, three weeks before the election in Michigan, uh, Uber successfully delivered uh, its first truckload of beer, 150 miles on an interstate um, without a driver. So the era of the truck driver, which is, I mean, in Wayne County, that's truck driving is, you know. That's such a, a strategic message to deliver beer, no less. Imagine, <laughs> imagine. <laughs> Imagine the, beer. The, well, yeah, it wasn't books. It wasn't. Uh, it's, like the, it's like the it's it's an it's an ultimate insult because it's like the truck driver's best friend. You know, it's truck driving and beer. You know, yeah. like, I mean, what's <laughs> like delivering chicken wings is next. Like, yeah, just can't get any lower. But then also at the same time, at the end of October, <laughs> when they announced uh, when they announced the first successful driverless truck delivery, um, McDonald's also announced they're going to rapidly ramp up. Uh, uh, staffless restaurants. Hmm. Um, so you just touch a screen and the yeah, food comes out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. screen. So yeah, those, um, those jobs are going. Yeah, those jobs are going. And you know, on the one hand, if if you know you can't can't afford college tuition, right? So you don't necessarily see a way out. Right. Um, and, and on the other hand, the kind of low wage jobs, or even low medium wage jobs that used to be bulwarks of of some kind of stability seem as if they're going to be technologized out of existence, right. at least on the horizon. You don't have to be stupid to, you know, or yeah. racist or crazy to read the writing on the wall that you're kind of becoming irrelevant. Yeah. So while I'm focused on the scary, horrifying dudes that Trump is bringing into his cabinet right yeah. now, I feel like that's, is that a distraction for me? I should be thinking about these bigger pictures moving forward. No, the leadership is really important, yeah. but you know, I mean, there's still, there's a, uh, there's still time before you know. I think uh, there needs to be like really grave concerns. Um, there are intimations that he's going to try to create a cabinet of rivals. Um, just today, he met with uh, Representative Gabbard, Tulsi Gabbard from uh, Hawaii, who's actually a Democrat and. She's someone I've really respected for a while. She spoke at the Democratic Convention. She's strongly anti-war. Um, you know, she, that's interesting, right? Yeah. And, and I mean, do you find do you think there's there's truth in that, or is it just I, I don't, is it just don't know. photo ops? The, the the point is is that from some law of the universe, the most powerful position in the world with the capacity to wreak incredible havoc and destruction in the world. Um, is being given this like, you know, like a, a pause period um, of a few months to really decide uh, the team and the the strategy that they're going to bring to bear with mm -hmm. these incredible this incredible array of of weapons and uh, incredible way, array of resources. So, um, you know. These things are, you know, it's it's hopeful somewhat. Um, I don't know if it'll be truthful. I don't know if it'll end up uh, in a bad place. Um, it definitely right. could could go that way if you have a, you know, the main announcements that we've seen are all like real hardliners. Yeah. Real hardliners. Um, and if you have a cabinet or a government that brings in 
a lot of those hardliners and also brings in at the less at the lesser levels you know you know people that are really just kind of out there um and radical in many ways mm -hmm. um you know kind of ill suited for for democratic governance on the one hand, and also like really radical. It's like the worst of both worlds, kind of, um, with very little intelligence to restrain them. So yeah, that would be that would be awful. Yeah. But maybe it doesn't. We're not sure. Right. We'll see. Um, have you thought about the the urban rural split and and the impact that that's had? And is there and are there ways to bridge yeah. build between the two? I mean, first of all, like uh, you know, I, I was in a state and in a county, in fact, that is both rural and urban. Um, in Michigan, it, yeah, in, in specifically my county in mm -hmm. Wayne County and uh, Western Wayne, which I was concerned with, uh, and you know we won a local, a Democrat flipped the the metrics, uh, which which went for Trump uh, in a very rural area of our county. Um, first time young uh, person running for the state house, and he won. Uh, which bucked the trend, you know, elsewhere. Um, and I think one of the things that, you know, that shows, um, and one of the things also that one of these recent articles that talked about Milwaukee and going to black barber shops, basically, I, I don't, I'm unconvinced that there's really a gaping division between urban and rural. Hmm. The division is largely predicated on class first, mm -hmm. on if you're rich or if you're poor and don't really see a leg out or much yeah. of a sustainable future. And then secondarily, sure, race, uh, definitely. But, um, you know, a lot of the same concerns that led people not to vote in Detroit are, this, you know, are held the same concerns by rural white, you know, voters mm -hmm. um, that feel as if it's going to be incredibly hard to imagine a, a, a successful future for them and their families. So mm -hmm. I think that the, that divide is, is a bit, is a bit overblown. Huh. Um, interesting. I, but again, we have to talk about which urban cities right. were we talking about? If we're talking about these global cities where global capital yeah. accumulates, New York, New York, is New York really a city anymore? It's a, it's a megalopolis global capital. Yeah. It's, it's, you're comparing apples and oranges if you talk about Cincinnati, if you talk about Toledo, right, right. if you talk about even Cleveland, you know, if you talk about Detroit, if you talk about, you know, you could name hundreds of these cities, sure. right, that are facing some of the same anxieties that a lot of the rural or the suburban areas are as well. So, yeah, if you're talking about the, like, collection of 20 or 30, you know, m kind of global American cities mm -hmm. where you're not just talking about a limited capital base for investment and economic activity. You're talking about a global scale. Yeah. Yeah. Russians are not investing in factories, much less real estate on like the banks of, you know, the Pittsburgh, uh, Pittsburgh or, <laughs> or, or, or Detroit. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it's marginal. Yeah. Uh, whereas here it's, it's a big difference. So yeah, I'm definitely skeptical of that. I'm skeptical of that. That divide is, is that uh, significant? What was the second question that you asked though? And that was, uh, I forgot. I just wondered about how to, how to, it's a, it's a conversation that we've been having in our house of this, uh, this concept of decentralizing the, the, the sense of culture. And, and we're in New York right now. Like how do we get oh, yeah. the, right, the right. learning the, that comes from being in a place the like this side. Yeah, and, out, out into the, 
Yeah, I mean, out like, into the rural areas of the country. You know, uh, I'm just thinking about that, that, those maps, those graphics we're all right. seeing, where it's just like red with little pockets of blue where there's, there's city a, centers. And there's then, a pretty, yeah. there's a pretty, you know, pretty straightforward, uh, well-known plan, mm -hmm. which is called investing in public education, mm -hmm. um, college-free tuition. Uh, that is that is the major. That is but one of several of the main struggles in this, you know, emerging global economy of the last 20 years um and you know so it's not a question of like getting you know harvard or, or RISD or brown or wherever to get more diverse candidates or, or drawing people from rural areas or whatever it may be i mean these are all for-profit institutions essentially mm -hmm. and or very expensive um that's not the thing the, the the issue is to invest deeply in the infrastructure of this country. Um, and that includes the physical infrastructure and that includes the intellectual in infrastructure yeah. of the country. And that's why, you know, college free tuition, you know, so became mainly because of Bernie, um, you know, a, a widely held democratic platform and was the, part of the most progressive democratic platform in more than a generation or two um, this summer. So, I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the key, that's the key. Um, hmm. Uh, investment in physical infrastructure, investment in education infrastructure, and then, you know, targeted investments in different economic sectors as well. But, you know, that all needs to be under the rubric of a free trade system that delivers benefits and funding to these public investments. Um, and that right now is not what's happening. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it makes sense that if you're on Bernie's side or Trump's side, you know, your main thing was against these sorts of economic uh, waves that have hit the country in the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. um, and this is tangentially re related, but um, are you able to sort of draw comparisons between the, 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 the nationalist movements that are sort of spreading through the West? Is, is what we just went through connected to that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, in the last... Three days, uh, Marine Le Pen, the, a leader of the uh, National Front in France, is now leading in presidential polls. That's never happened, I, f I think, uh, before. Mm -hmm. um, you, uh, you see that in a number of countries. Um, of course, Britain is a good example with Brexit. Mm -hmm. um, Can you pinpoint an origin of it all? When did it start? When did this start? Yeah, I mean, the, the origin of it is the ways in which... Uh, Globalization since the 1980s really um, has impacted on uh, average people's lives. Um, and that paired with um, the uh, intense movement of people um, over the last 20 years. Country to country, continent country to country, continent. continent, to continent. Mm -hmm. If you pair that up, I mean, just any you know, back of the envelope calculation that a very, you know, simple person would make is that, you know, an immigrant might not be taking my job, but the constant influx of cheap labor undercuts the wage market right. in general. Mm -hmm. um, now, we can argue about whether or not that's actually true, but that seems like to be common sense for a lot of people. So that is certainly operative in, in Europe certainly operative in Europe. So, you know, if these influx of uh, migrants had been um, lubricated by a distribution of benefits from globalization, 
mm-hmm. which we know that it exists, right? I mean, yeah. Apple has literally $500 billion in offshore profits. The total count now is something like $4 trillion in offshore profits by American companies. I mean, globalization has been wildly successful and it's efficient too. Yeah. You know, and it makes sense that uh, truck drivers shouldn't drive trucks if yeah. robots make more sense. We sh- Apple should make their stuff in China <laughs> if it makes you know, a more economic sense, but also it has to be paired with the benefits of right. that actually. Well, then you also get into human rights to too in, in some of these developing nations that are building our products. Yeah. And making but sure that's why that I would say the critical yeah. caveat is that the benefits of the trade filter to the people that are either affected by it or making it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, that goes hand in hand. Yeah, that, yeah. In other words, like, you know, perhaps wages are comparatively cheaper in China for now over the next 10, 20 years. But the benefits of that have to filter down to the Chinese, not just in the form of better wages, but mm-hmm. in better, better rights as well. Yeah. So, yeah, both of those sides are forgotten. And you said this sort of uh, the, the globalization of stuff is really ramped up in the 80s. Would that have been under the Reagan administration? No, I mean, I think the real, you know, I mean, looking backwards, the real, uh, I think the real place to look is during the Clinton administration. Um, Mm. The Clinton administration, you know, really accelerated the pace of globalization's impact on the United States. And it did it in such a way that it didn't come with a distribution of benefits socially that were being derived Mm -hmm. from that. Uh, we did get a tremendous economic boost in the late 1990s that had a bubble effect. Sure, all mm-hmm. those things. Um, and, th- you know, there's, a, there's another question to, to wonder about, which is, you know, if, if the, if the um, Iraq war hadn't happened, uh, perhaps we would have had enough, you know, cash to lubricate uh, society. Um, you know, it's guns or butter. You get to choose, right? And <laughs> yeah. we chose guns, uh, you know, crudely. But... The other thing is that I'm not convinced about that. Um, Hmm. I think even if we hadn't gotten involved in an incredibly expensive and also disastrous Iraq war in 2003, we would still uh, have probably had the financial meltdown of 2008 um, because, again, the commitment, especially in the 1990s when globalization really ramps up, Mm -hmm. really gets like firing on all cylinders as a result in large part because of American and Clinton policy, um, but also the continuation of policies from the Reagan approach, sure. Right. Um, you know, that, that acceleration uh, derives lots of benefits to a narrowing elite of the country. Right. And nothing was done on the op- opposite end. Yeah, I feel like I read something last week about um, it was actually Clinton and his policies that may have killed Hillary's chances of selection. Yeah. Maybe, and maybe that, you just summarized it. Clinton and, you know, I mean... I mean, I was in grade school and I was like totally pro NAFTA. Um, and yeah, it was, it was Hillary and Bill. I mean, both of them were fighting Hillary, Bill and, and Al Gore were all fighting for fighting for it. Mm-hmm. Um, they were fighting for it. And, uh, you know, NAFTA is certainly one part of the puzzle. The, it was under Clinton that Glass-Steagall Banking Act got repealed, yeah. you know, not under George W. Bush or under Reagan. It was Bill Clinton that mm-hmm. led to, many of the extreme problems that finally blew up in everyone's face in 2008. Right. So one of the things I think a lot of people are wrestling with, at least in my little orbit are, are reevaluating how we take in news and information and yeah. media. Um, and I think 
I can speak for myself, but was caught completely flat footed. I was yeah. in this, one of these echo chambers we're talking about. Yeah. Um, and sort of conditioned to think like, Oh, I don't need to worry that bad. You know, you see all these little tickers and percentages and, you know, based on the polls that are coming in and, you know, whatever. And, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to take a step back and think about where I read my news and where I listen to my news. And I'm wondering where, if you might have some suggestions, yeah. uh, what, what, what sources do you have for news? Where do you right. get your news from? Well, Besides so midiswire.com. Yeah. Well, then there, there are two, uh, there are two I think, uh, important rules or two important ideas, let's say. Mm -hmm. uh, the first is that technology needs to put, be put in its place, which is that it is subservient to the organic work of the human mind and the human heart. Um, and uh, if, you, if you don't make technology subservient and... You know, you expect that if you shovel better data into a better algorithm that you will get better results, um, uh, that th that will lead to a, a real dangerous outcome. Mm -hmm. um, so the first thing to say is that no matter what news we're consuming, we have to constantly make sure and check ourselves that that consumption and the use of technology is being uh, made subservient to your own brain. Mm -hmm. Um, and also, you know, the organic touch of mm -hmm. talking to people and listening to people. So that's the first thing. And that's more about technology and, and it's dom increasing dominance. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think people like from our generation, you know, but like we, we're, uh, I was talking about this with Hisham actually, the other, who I saw, mm -hmm. um, Ara's thing. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like we got kind of lucky because we have both the perspective of the sort of less technologically driven yeah. side of being an aware, critical yeah. thinker and also that side, too. You yeah, know? We, were, we were like had one foot out, one foot yeah, in. Yeah, which when, I, I when, think perfectly. When the Internet really caught on. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, which I think is, is, is really a uh, uh, I think it really builds up to be an important mission for our specific slice our specific decade let's mm -hmm. say that or that band of 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 people um, bison bicentennial era babies yeah right yeah i the, think that's the, the 70s i think that's what it is <laughs> yeah. yeah i think that's what it is um but there's a particular imperative maybe for us but so the first thing is technology needs to be put in its place it mm -hmm. has to be subservient to the human mind and the human heart um, it's a tool. Uh, it it cannot be. Uh, it and should not be autonomous. Um, no matter how perfect it is, that just leads to dystopia. So, um, the second thing is that uh, just like you know, in the Middle East and and with, you know, the, our translation work and uh, you know the things that I write and things that I do, um, you have to. And it seems kind of corny, but it's it's more true than ever. You have to listen to your opposite you have to listen to your right. enemy you have to listen to those who disagree who you disagree with but you have to also uh, listen it's it's not just a quantitative issue it's also a qualitative issue that's why i've had a lot of problems with uh, left-wing or liberal media that attempts to explain for example the alt-right mm -hmm. right? if you're going in with a framework of pretty intense bias you're probably gonna pick out the stuff that reinforces your, you know, your opening sort of position. 
Um, or your assumptions. Or your, your opening assumptions, yeah. right? Um, and that's really dangerous. So, I mean, uh, this, this summer with our friend Sam, uh, who's doing a documentary that'll be coming out soon uh, on Trump's advisor, the bad boy of politics named Roger Stone. Um, I joined their film crew and went to the Republican convention and also went to the Democratic convention, uh, which was interesting to see both of them up front or sort of up close and personal. Um, but, uh, you know, I was with Roger Stone for a couple of days, but more important than Roger was I got to meet Alex Jones. And it was the first time I'd sort of heard over the years from, you know, over in the Middle East, you know, every once in a while, an article from Infowars would come up, you know, and it was always so funny to me because I, I knew it was a right wing publication, but they were also echoing left wing perspectives coming out of the Middle East. Right. Huh. For example, ISIS is a creation of the U.S. government or Hillary helped build up ISIS, you know, or we're in bed with Al Qaeda, all these things um, that some left wing and certainly some different aspects of the Middle Eastern body politic were, were also arguing. Right. So that that was just kind of interesting, but I never really paid attention. Um, but then I met Alex and then I also listened while I was I was driving the crew around helping out and I would listen to his podcast during the day and um, and then on the Hillary campaign I basically every day that I was driving and there's a lot of driving in the county um, I was I would listen to to Alex Jones um, and it was a uh, it was really fascinating um, look but it takes a lot of time to understand what's going on because it is a sophisticated it's pretty sophisticated discourse. Yeah. Um, contrary to what a lot of the liberal media portrays, that it's just kind of stupid conspiracy theory, white supremacy. You know? well, well, I don't even know who Alex Jones is. Yeah, who so, is so that's what's also interesting yeah. is that Alex Jones is, you know, the most popular radio or uh, online personality in America right now. Hmm. More popular than Rush Limbaugh. Um, I mean, they do videos and, and, and on he, YouTube. He self-describes himself as an alt-right figure uh no i mean I, I think i think that he embraced that wholeheartedly because hillary in her famous alt-right speech mm -hmm. called out alex jones as being the dark heart of the alt-right oh. it's alex jones it's breitbart and it's you know uh uh it's a few other figures a drudge report for example yeah. um you know and there are some others but um uh, it's funny, like Rush Limbaugh is not even brought up anymore. It's like he's establishment, you know, and people like Glenn Beck have flipped, you know. And Glenn Beck's on the New York Times now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, he's considered to be a kind of Benedict Arnold along with, you know, uh, uh, Megyn Kelly from Fox, etc. But mm -hmm. um, the, the point is, is that, um, you know, it was just like, for me, it was very similar to... Uh, translating, reading, uh, not me translating, but like reading uh, the head of Hezbollah in the Middle East, which is Hassan Nasrallah, um, you know, dismissed by some critics, especially that don't read him in translation or in the original, you know, as just being a kind of terrorist, you know, hateful, anti-Semitic, uh, you know, awful person, basically purveyor of death and the yeah. cult of death. Um, but actually realizing that he has... Uh, an incredible ability to speak to a popular audience in very sophisticated uh, ways, actually, and about very sophisticated subjects for hours on end, which I have never, which I haven't seen reproduced by an American politician in, in a long time until I sort of saw, you know, the public figure of Alex Jones, who, hmm. you know, can riff for four hours, you know, and people 
can listen to it. Right, but throughout. you're listening to him with sort of like an analytical yeah. mind, right? You're not like looking for information from him. You're just we're trying to understand no. how he works. Well, I'm, I'm trying to understand how he frames <laughs> the arguments. Right. And the way he has framed the arguments, both in form and content, is the beating heart of the Trump presidency. And it's seen in the manifestation of Steve Bannon being chief of staff. Okay. Right. So that's a huge slice of Trump and Trump's victory mm -hmm. is a huge part is due to Alex Jones. And that's why Trump, it sounds like in the next probably two weeks, is going to go back on his show um, to thank Alex Jones and his listeners. And actually, he called Alex Jones five days after the election to thank him and his Jeez. listeners. Yeah, incredible stuff. Like on air? No, he didn't do it. He didn't do it on air, but he it. will be going on air. But... Um, Isn't this problematic, though? I mean, those those that it seems that that point of view well, it is, is problematic. It's, it's yeah. problematic, like a group like Hezbollah is problematic, right? I mean, these are these are uh, leaders and movements that have an incredible ability to marshal human beings, human sentiment, and human energy towards incredibly destructive ends, potentially. Yeah. Um, of course, you know the same could be argued. You know about a lot of different figures, right? Uh, or about a lot of different potential. People thought that Hillary Clinton was going to bring us into World War III, you mm -hmm. know? And um, there's some reason to think that, you know, her and foreign policy could have very likely gotten us enmeshed in a series of conflicts around the world. We, mm -hmm. we, we, won't, we won't know. Um, but yeah, it is real dangerous. But the, the point is, is, the point is you have to listen to it and you have to understand it on its own terms. And you have to understand it on its own terms in order to understand... An effective strategy to combat it and until until we do until we do and you got to really listen you know you just can't turn on one thing and that's it you know right. it's a classic mistake of a lot of the journalists that have tried to write about alex jones in the last few months um you have to really spend time with this and it's a dirty it's a, it's you know makes you want to have a yeah. shower sometimes yeah man i wouldn't be able to. it's tough it's tough i mean <laughs> i wouldn't be able to go there you know i don't think i could even i mean you're i know you're, you're sort of saying like check this guy out and what his points of view but i don't know if i could let it into my you know you're talking about like keeping check of the human heart i don't know if i can even bring it in i got you but the problem is is that he is and that perspective is a large reason why your next president, our next president, is going to be president. Yeah. So it, it doesn't matter if you don't want to. If you don't want to let in, I understand that, but it's it's coming. You in. feel like we have a it's responsibility. The, we, we look if there's going to be an effective response to different aspects of what the Trump administration seems to be bringing to the lining table. up. And yeah. I, and again, I'm very open about this. I'm not sure we're given this. Shakespearean few months of, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, a lot of things could happen. And, but if it's an overwhelmingly hardline um, set of characters at various different levels, um, the only way to understand uh, or to develop a strategy against it is to understand it okay. and appreciate it, uh, or at least, at the very least, uh, understand the, the power that it's been able mm -hmm. to marshal. Um, just one theme that I think is difficult for us, to, for some of us to hear is that, you know, I think if you if you listen long enough to someone like Alex Jones, or I'll say specifically Alex Jones, because I don't have much experience with other uh, these other figures, mm -hmm. um, many of whom, you know, sometimes I listen to, but they're they're like just not very interesting or very third rate. There's mm -hmm. a reason why Alex is so goddamn popular in this country. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, if we listen to it, we can also see some interesting things that are different from 
when we think about like Hitler, for example, or the rise of any of these like, you know, incredibly violent fascist or, you know, whatever it may be, dictatorial figures, um, uh, Alex has been able not only to tap into a lot of anger and bring some real left-wing themes to his critique, but he's also been able, unlike I think any right-wing populist that I can think of over the last hundred years, he's been able to co-opt or begin co-opting two key concepts that we think are only the province of progressives, which is tolerance and inclusivity. Mm-hmm. Um, Alex has gay people on his show. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alex, uh, you know, uh, part of his, some of his main theme shows are about how the KKK is like just an abomination and also interestingly ties it, you know, into a tool actually of, of global elites basically um, <laughs> as a, as a racist uh, way to undermine legitimate criticisms of elites, basically. And there's a lot in that of history of, you know, white landowners creating the KKK and duping, you know, poor landless whites into yeah. believing that, you know, landless blacks or sharecroppers are their right. worst enemies. So it's a complex history. It's, it's a complex history. And Alex is able to unpack that. So if we if we can understand some of those things, I think we can develop a better strategy. So you listen to him. Who do you listen to to balance it? Or I guess I'm I'm curious what you're saying. Check out both sides. Well, I don't know about I don't necessarily know about both sides. I mean, uh, you know, um, I mean, I obviously I I I'm mainly read about foreign policy. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm interested in the kind of the you know pro-war neocon side and what they argue and how they frame issues. And I'm also interested in the leftist. Uh, and let's say resistance access side of things out in the in the world and in the Middle East and elsewhere. So, yeah, for me, it's important to read both of those. Um, and you can oftentimes, I mean, you know, I I enjoy I enjoy watching Fox News at night because you know for a similar reason of Alex Jones, although it's it's kind of at a a different level. But um, you know, Fox News is interesting because they what they do is. They go point by point to show why the liberal argument is totally bogus, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, sometimes the points are quite valid or sometimes the points need to be thought of and acted upon by the left or by liberals or by Mm -hmm. progressives, you know? Um, So I I, I see it as a way to sharpen your own side, basically. And if we don't, if we cut those, if we just don't listen to them, you know, I mean, I'm always shocked by people when I come home to the U.S. That, like, don't listen to Fox News or anything like that, you know, uh, or don't listen to these figures like Alex Jones. It's it's like, well, I mean, how are you going to understand your own vulnerabilities? Sure, sure. I mean, well, there's so much emotion involved. And, and there, there is so much emotion. I'll speak for myself. Sometimes I can't handle, I can't handle uh, the vitriol that comes out of some of these news sources. I guess, you know, frankly, maybe it is just easier for me because I've lived abroad for 13 years and my province is foreign policy. I mean, I yell at the TV, I guess, you know, back in Beirut or Tunis when it's like, there's a war going on and, you know, some jerk is on Fox, you know, commentating about how we need to carpet bomb everyone. Yeah. So yeah. And that doesn't affect me going to get my, my slushy from seven 11 one bit. Yeah. yeah. It's completely removed from what's going on. Right. You're right. So, I mean, yeah, I, I'm not, it's not easy, man. Yeah. It's not easy. Yeah. Um, sort of connected what, uh, you know, I feel like there's a, like a little, at least from where I stand, a little bit of a vacuum in terms of leadership, like who, who are the new people that we should be looking looking at and getting excited about? Um, is there anyone that y- I just y- have no idea? Man. You you don't even know either. Oh, I feel like I just got back for this election a few months ago, and mm-hmm. 
you know, I, I just don't know. Hmm. I just don't know. Um, it seems like Bernie is still got a, got got some skin in the game a little bit. Or Bernie's is he going to age out? I have no idea. I Who mean, knows? we we had one of our I had Bernie in in Wayne County a month ago, month and a half ago, and got probably the biggest turnout that we've ever gotten with him, and he was great, and mm-hmm. people were psyched. But I have no idea. Not I have yet. No idea. Too early, maybe. Yeah. Um, and then. How so? You're you're going back to the Middle East. Um, do you have any suggestions for for people that are just fucked up still, like how to move forward, how to process what just went down? Um, pragmatic steps to get more involved outside of the obvious of you know obviously voting, maybe paying attention to where you spend your money a bit more, yeah. making the phone calls to elected officials, these things like that. Outside of those sort of things that everyone's already emailing around. Um, from where you stand as as uh, someone that's steeped in politics and I think global uh, politics, the two things are that you know we have this period of a couple months, uh, this grace period, um, yeah, and I think things right. are going to come. I think things will come come up quite rapidly, um, and again, it depends on what kind of a team he brings and what kind of a strategy he brings. But they could come up quite rapidly, and. Um, you know, the two things to do are one is try to listen to some of the arguments of that side. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the first thing to do. It's, it's very important. And then the other thing is to try and look at what's happened in the past. Um, we have this time where we can kind of look back at history right now mm-hmm. and decide, um, what has happened in similar situations through human history. Um, There's similar situations to this? Yeah, I think there are similar yeah. situations, definitely. But, I mean, that's why you have to listen to the current discourse of that other side in order to understand what's new, mm-hmm. what's innovative about this, mm-hmm. right? Then you also have to look at what's happened in the past and what are some constants that we've seen, right? right? And I think if you get those two things together, you'll be in a great position, a much better position, when things start to move real fast after January 20th. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, this, this is a, a bit of an unorthodox conversation. I'm usually talking to artists about art and I want to, um, make sure I point out that you are a creative person yourself. Somewhat creative. Well, you've, <laughs> you're a supporter of the arts. You yeah. have, uh, any number of friends in your immediate social circle are yeah. artists. Or musicians. You are a musician yourself. You yeah. play guitar. When was the last time you played guitar? With Kev and Sam, I guess, a few weeks ago. Oh, there you yeah. go. Um, what was that? But you're also, uh, you had a hand in making a documentary about Lightning Bolt. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you, you I, I feel like it's an interesting facet of you as this um, guy that knows about politics. You also know about the art world. Yeah. And you know how people like me think and how we sort of operate. And I'm wondering if, if, if we talk about art as if we don't, if we choose not to separate art from life and if we choose to believe that art is fundamental to the human experience, um, what role can someone like me have, uh, in this current political discourse? Is there a way for artists to use their skill set more if, uh, wisely or um, or is it just simple more civic engagement is it as simple as that what I think is is uh, it's good in a way although it's predicated on disaster is you know that the role of the artist now 
uh, is probably going to be radically shifted as the situation potentially changes radically in these coming months and years. Um, if we believe, if the administration that comes in is in fact going to affect a series of actions that um, that radically change things, um, not least in terms of conflict here or abroad or the economy or social rights or race relations mm -hmm. or whatever it may be, I think the role of the artist will be somewhat different. We don't know what it will be, but there are definitely going to be a lot of artists and they're going to be involved, I think, in different ways than they ever imagined. Hmm. Um, what shape that will take, I have no idea, but um, it's clear that there is, I think, at this moment of intense sort of potential change and potential conflict as well, that um, that there are there are, I feel like there are more artists and more platforms to engage humans, society, politics than ever before in human history. So that is, I think, a really hopeful thing. Just because you know, I think like you, I believe in art. Mm -hmm. You know, so um, I think that that's a really hopeful part of this. Um, Artists are going to be called on as I think probably never before. Um, you know, unfortunately, art making is also like economically a really tough endeavor. Yeah. Um, but it looks like a lot of professions are going to be a tough endeavor next year, depending on how, how, how much change and how quickly. Mm -hmm. um, but things are not going to be the same uh, pre January twentieth and post January twentieth, and I think. Artists are going to have uh, a larger role than they have had. Like an activist role, you think? Uh, just There's a larger just role, a larger role than artists have had in previous major inflection points in human history. Hmm. I think that that's partially because of technology, partially because of the just the sheer numbers of people that are now involved in the culture industry. Yeah. Right. So I think that, you know, that's, it's, it's, you know, there's partially a little nation of artists, right? Mm -hmm. um, which is, I think, a very good thing. Um, and the old debates about to be politically committed artists or not, or all these things, I think that those will seem like quaint old debates. Because yeah. um, I think that artists are going to play a key role in, in, in what happens uh, and in a potential resistance, in a potential uh, for framing uh uh, opposition, right. whatever it may be, but or just putting a narrative out there, or just putting shapes, narratives, colors, images, images, um, you know, a whole series of forms uh, and content. Um, yeah, so I think that that's going to be a key key part of it. Cool. Um, you know, Donald Trump was. I remember he was he was like so upset about Jay Z and Beyonce doing an event right before the election. You know, and he was, you know, he, his favorite refrain is that they're overrated or they're failing or whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, I think there was legitimate concern about the culture industry coming coming up behind Hillary Clinton. Um, and I think it's it's rightfully so in, in the sense that people that are shaping our culture um, are have a tremendous amount of, of power, mm -hmm. um, more so than perhaps they ever have. Um, so that means that, you know, that there's a lot of opportunity. There's yeah. a lot of opportunity for you and for our friends and for others. Cool. Yeah. I'm missing anything? No, man. You good? Done. Well, thanks, Nick. I approve this message. <laughs> thanks, Nick. Okay.
we've made it to the end. A quick reminder that listeners can learn more about this project and the artists featured by visiting deepcolorpodcast.com. You can also find the series and subscribe in iTunes. Thank you for listening and check back soon for a new episode.